You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Monday, January the 3rd, the first show in 2022. Thank you very much for listening. It is Bank Holiday Monday today, but that's not going to stop us. We've got plenty to talk about during the course of the next half an hour, 40 minutes or so. I've got an extended interview with Jeremy Ray, the founder of the Racing League, which returns for a second series in 2022. It will now be on ITV4. I'll be talking to him about how that might make a difference uh, to the Racing League's popularity. Also be discussing ITV's own viewing figures and why jumps racing appears to be so much more popular than flat racing. Lots of good jump racing over the weekend and we'll be discussing some key performances. Plus, I'll be joined by Professor Caroline Tisdall, the owner of Vieux Lyon Rouge, one of the most enduring horses in national hunt racing, who it was announced by trainer David Pipe had retired today. And let's hope it's a long and glorious retirement. But first of all, uh, as we reported on this podcast first in November, off the back of an article by David Walsh in the Sunday Times, uh, trainer Dan Skelton could be in the wires, and that story gained further momentum from Walsh and in the Racing Post by Peter Scargill yesterday. David Yates is newsboy from the Dave, uh, Daily Mirror. Dave, why is this? Okay, well, I think the, the starting point, the logical starting point here, Nick, is the, the trainer's code of conduct, which I'm going to paraphrase, but essentially, when trainers act as vendor, part vendor, or advisor, uh, they must disclose the financial benefit uh, that they derive uh, from the sale of a horse and also of course uh, they must be upfront about uh, that horse's state of fitness now that's the statute the the bones of this case uh, they surround a horse called George Gently, who had run once in France at uh, Anguien, was sold in September 2016 for £130,000. That was to a group headed by Tony Holt, who had had success with Dan Skelton's yard, notably with Superb Story in the County Hurdle in 2016, and of course had other horses in the yard. Uh, It then transpired that George Gently was off the track for 516 days, had two starts for the yard, was pulled up at Southall and was seventh of eight at Kempton in the first quarter of 2018 and then subsequently was sold for 1,800 quid. Now, in July 2018, the BHA began an investigation into the claim that Dan Skelton had indeed had a beneficial interest in the horse and, and stood to derive a financial benefit from its sale that he didn't declare uh, when he recommended to Tony Holt that uh, this horse should be purchased. Um, There was evidence of a payment of £42,033, which was just less than one third of the purchase price. Now, Dan Skelton claimed that this was merely an arrangement under which he received a, a third of the purchase price of previous owner uh, Dave Futter's horses and that was in lieu of training fees. The 
initial investigation from the BHA concluded in October 2019, they found that there was no case to answer. Now, as you say, a, an article appeared in the Sunday Times written by David Walsh in November, uh, which covered this. And now, as of yesterday, we learn from uh, a follow-up article by David Walsh in the Sunday Times that Dan Skelton is to face charges. This is uh, based on a communication from uh, the owner, uh, Tony Holt, to David Walsh. As yet, Dan Skelton uh, says that the, the BHA have not notified him of any charges that he's going to face. So, David, in an effort to try and clear up exactly what's, what's happening here and who knows what and why, I just asked two simple questions to the BHA this morning um, because I realise they don't want to comment on this inquiry while it's ongoing. But I did say, is it common practice to notify somebody who's going to be charged that they are about to face charges? And in addition, is it common practice for the person who has made the complaint to be given advance notice that the person they have complained about is going to be charged? And I received the following response from the BHA. On the subject of keeping parties up to speed, the BHA would always keep a respondent updated at least every three months. It is actually quite rare that the BHA is acting on a complaint as opposed to identifying the breach. So keeping a complainant, who in this case would be Tony Holt and his associates, informed isn't a common thing. Where that is a factor, though, it is good practice to explain why things are or aren't happening, which doesn't really fully answer the question. Yeah, my brain hurts. Um, so just to paraphrase that, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yes, I think that's what it says. In, in so far as keeping a complainant informed isn't a common thing. Where that is a factor, though, it is good practice to explain why things are or aren't happening. But, I mean, that, that doesn't, what that doesn't answer, and full marks the BHA for coming out with a statement, and I, I mean this, I'm not being facetious, um, Full marks the BHA for, for saying something other than the BHA does not comment on ongoing investigations or rumours of such. Um, full marks for, for saying something, but the difficulty with that is um, it doesn't really address the question of, uh, of charges. Well, yes, you can keep, by, by all means, keep a complainant up to speed with the investigation but when you cross that line and decide right we will we will bring charges then surely surely that's something whereby the uh the to put it in legal terms the plaintiff and the defendant surely surely they have to know uh, when that line is crossed surely they have to know that simultaneously don't they i mean the, well, the um, as I, I, I say, the question I asked was, could they both have been, you know, informed simultaneously that charges were about to be brought, even if no formal charges have yet been brought? And again, I, I don't fully have the answer to that question. I realise I'm in danger of disappearing down the rabbit hole here. I would also like, because uh, the, the BHA is, is keen to stress that they are trying to expedite these inquiries as best they can. They did say that... Uh, you know, judicial and quasi-judicial processes can sometimes take time, serious complex cases, 
uh, where they are appropriate for swift determination, they go through the fast track process. But once an individual has been charged, there must be time for the defendants to respond, etc. We understand all that. They did say, nevertheless, following the Robbie Dunn case, we stated we'll be speaking to the chair of the independent panel regarding case management and finding ways to reduce the time. So I think criticism of time taken is being is being taken on board. Yeah, and uh, there are two sides to that argument, which I've said on the um, the NLD previously, that we, we can't have it both ways. Yes, those of us who whose job it is to report on these things, yes, of course, we we express from time to time um, the uh, the sentiment that that this thing is th- this inquiry is dragging on. When will there be? Uh, when will the end be in sight? But on the other side of the coin too, uh, the BHA, if they were to conduct something, uh, an inquiry with what would then perceive to be in decent haste, then of course uh, they would get pelters from the other side too. So I, I'm on one side saying, well, you know, these 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 things seem to be dragging on. But of course, uh, the main priority has to be uh, a thorough investigation in each case where uh, every stone is turned over and if that takes time I think that's something that the rest of us just have to take on board. You know I'm conscious Dave that we can get bogged down in procedure here whatever happens here whether or not ultimately Dan Skelton is charged with anything whether or not this does come to a disciplinary hearing it is out there now an owner's dissatisfaction whether that is well founded or as Dan Skelton would no doubt counter unfounded and it once again puts the sale of horses under under a microscope over the last couple of years we've been used to reading quite a few articles about what is uh, perceived i think of murky waters within uh, the bloodstock industry and whether an owner uh, buying a horse through a trainer or at the sales gets a fair deal um, and the the code of conduct is there obviously to ensure that that people coming into this sport can uh, believe what they see and obviously that's to be applauded uh, and whilst dave you you were cutting the bha quite a bit of slack for time taken and understanding that from a from a legal perspective still their processes will come under scrutiny as david walsh said again yesterday on sky sports racing you know, why was there no case to answer originally? And now it appears that there there is a case to answer over that elongated period of time. Do we know that it was the appearance in the Sunday Times, for example, that prompted a reopening of the inquiry? Had the inquiry always been open? These are things that, that we're, we're just not sure about. But I'm sure we'll, well, you'd hope would emerge in the in the fullness of time if indeed that time comes. Yeah, I mean, th- this is a difficulty with the BHA's policy of of having something of an information vacuum, isn't it? Um, You know, I mean, I've been doing the the mirror job now since, well, May 2002, so very nearly 20 years. And I'm I'm used to ringing the BHA for a comment, which will be something I can put in quotation marks that says the BHA does not comment on individual cases. Now, of course, on the one hand, that means that the BHA aren't giving away um, snippets of information or information which might later come back uh, to haunt them. But the, the, the other side of that coin, of course, is that there's an information vacuum and, and people like you and people like me, we go away and 
in the absence of information from the regulator, we have to speculate. So whilst I'm sure that they're going to stick to um, that policy in the future, then members of the media will quite naturally have to try and join the dots on their own. Well, news came through the other day that the Racing League would return later this summer and there are some significant changes uh, to this team competition. Jeremy Ray, the founder of the Racing League, joins me now. Jeremy, just quickly, what are the, what are the key changes you've made this year? I think, I think the, headli- the headline is obviously that we've, we've changed it into a, a geogra- geographical format, I suppose, for the, for the team element that we've gone in. We've gone from uh, 12 teams down to seven, but each team having two runners, so effectively looking hopefully at fields of, of, of 14 and um, going around the regions of the UK and Ireland. I think Ireland worked well last year as one of the, as one of the competitors and um, uh, I think we've, we've grown that by adding you know, Scotland, uh, Yorkshire, the north, the east, London and the south, Wales and the west. So basically going right around the UK and Ireland and, uh, and, and hopefully covering the whole area and, the t- and, and getting people from those areas to, to, to put up a, a strong regional competition. So the other key change in terms of the composition of the of the horses and riders is that it's now open to all. Is that right? So it, it, is it anybody theoretically can have a horse in the racing league. Yes, I mean that was. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've said this a couple of times before that it was in theory open to everyone to start with. But of course, if you if you uh, if you're looking for. Um, 12 teams of four you uh, on a, almost on a first come first serve basis then you are only catering for 48 trainers and we know there are upward of 400 i think in the uk on the flat so uh, clearly we did we, we didn't manage to get everybody and we wanted to be in last year and uh, this seems a better format um you know we we went out at the beginning of december and said look literally anybody who wants to be involved as a licensed flat trainer even if you've only got a couple of horses um, we're changing the structure, so do let us know. Um, we've had a fantastic response. Um, over over 100 trainers have replied. Um, well over 100, actually, you know, close to 120. Uh, and so, from that point of view, we you know we've certainly got enough to now sort out into the seven regional teams and make sure that everybody who wants to uh, have a go um, can participate. Uh, now, the important announcement came uh, on New Year's Day that you would be getting um, uh, free-to-air TV coverage on ITV4. What difference do you think that will make to your business? Um, well, I, th- I think more importantly than what it does to the business, I think what it does uh, to, the, to the competition. I think if you, you know, I, I'm always looking at comparisons of how other people and other sports have done things. And I think if you look at the hundred, the combination in, in, in cricket's new competition of terrestrial uh, uh, and, and, and sky made a huge difference. It brought in a new audience having think having the sport on two channels. Um, and I think that's what we're, that's what we're really trying to do. We're really, hoping that um, the, the TV offering is different. Um, uh, I thought some of the stuff we did with Sky last year was very exciting in terms of some sort of the new data stuff and new camera angles. And I just feel that with a terrestrial audience as well, we can broaden that out. I think we can look at a, you know, this is Thursday evenings when all's said and done. It's not, it's not a festival. It's not Saturday afternoon. It's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's midweek um, and we want to make it something that's really is um, opens the sport out to, to people who maybe just haven't you know haven't appreciated just just what a brilliant sport racing is
And and for all your um your naturally um philanthropic nature, I'm sure, Jeremy, you need to make money out of this. You put two million quid into the into the game last year. Um, you, at some point, you you want to see a return. So the you know, the obvious question is, right? What's the business plan now? How is how is this concept going to be going to be uh, realistically monetized? Yeah, I think I think that's true. Um, and, and from our point of view, I think uh, going down the seven regional teams gives us a chance to really strengthen that. And, and what I'm looking at there is getting um, uh, brand involvement, sponsorship involvement for for our seven regional teams for the competition. Um, I think it's something that racing has has got to look at in terms of new revenue streams. I'm convinced that if we've got a, a strong and exciting new product that there are there are businesses out there that will use racing that probably ha- probably haven't used racing in the past um to, to showcase their showcase their wares uh we've certainly got one or two interesting new leads that we want to pursue um i think from what we did last year uh y- yes it was it, it, it was it was just dis- deliberately disruptive it wanted to shout out the names of some brands um uh, and we were very grateful for the brands that came on board last year, um, but we always wanted that to be a precursor, hopefully, to getting bigger and better involvement, but um, with a wider reach, more activation on the track from from, from some bigger companies, uh, and you know that's that's very much the hope from a business perspective this year that um, we can drive those new revenue streams. Just going back to to, to the broadcasters, obviously, as you say, you now got two broadcasters, Skype put some innovation into this last year uh, i'm sure itv have have offered much the same are, are there specific additions or innovations that you would like to see in your ideal world when you shut your eyes and dream about how this event might be covered are there things that you would really like to see um yes and and and, and i don't want to just announce all of those now because obviously in in fairness to well, certainly, on, in fairness to ITV coming on board, they they clearly saw something in last year's show that they thought they could work with and improve on, and have ideas of their own that were certainly exciting um, when they suggested them to me. Um, and you know, look, I, I I was clear from the outset that in terms of the TV offering, I, I think racing can do so much more from a from a data perspective. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, I've I've always said that looking at one or two sports that I don't have a particular interest in say say motor racing it's absolutely fantastic the, the coverage and the data coverage on that um, I think also the spectacle itself when you look at the live event and and look at um, you, you know just how the how the the reporters move around and mingle and get people involved uh, in and around the sport I, I want to see that much more in racing I think it's so important that the the cult of sort of personality within the sport is embraced, and 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 that we find out far more about the human participants um, than we have done in the past. Um, so, you know, I, I would like to think that those elements certainly we bring out much to the fore this year. And just in terms of the the, the central kernel of the concept, i.e., that it is a team competition, and that you know will be pushed back against by by plenty, and it, and it was last year. You've 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 listened to a lot of the criticism, you've responded to to quite a bit of that as well, and you've re, reshaped it fundamentally in your heart of hearts. Did you see enough last year to believe that that team competition in horse racing is still something that is that is fundamentally attractive to to the racing fan? Well, as I say, when you say to the racing fan, I think we have to take take the sport 
out of its out of its comfort zone and into the area of entertainment. Uh, and that's not getting gimmicky, but that's saying to saying to people that if we're going to grow the audience for racing, like other sports have attempted to grow, and, and I go and I half back to cricket and what they've done with T20 and the hundred, and go and have a look at what golf's attempting to do with PGL. Um, some really interesting ways of trying to take golf forward as a team competition, which which I think is very exciting. I think what people are recognising is that if you're going for a new audience, um, and probably probably reality TV has told us this that you know pe- people engage with sort of the human interest and there are so many stories in racing that we can tell through through the sport that will allow it to be an exciting format yes you use some some, some tools that are, uh, that are tried and tested league tables teams points that worked last year i mean we had a fantastic finish to the racing league last year we had three or four teams going into the last race who could win it you have a point structure where suddenly the that the winning talk sport team needed to come fifth or sixth in the last race to ensure they won the league. I mean, these are concepts that people understand from other sports. And I think it definitely works. There was a camaraderie between the teams that succeeded last year, definitely built a camaraderie between the trainers during the, during the competition and worked hard at putting out their strongest available team each week. And they benefited by, you know, by, by doing well and winning it. And I think that will be seen by all the teams this year. I would think that it will, you know, the fact that we've come down to seven regional teams will will harden that competitive element, and there won't be anybody who's uh, who's taking part in this who couldn't care less. I don't think. I think you'll, you'll find as the competition goes on, people will really be cheering on their teams. Jeremy, thanks so much for talking to me. Best of luck. Thanks a lot, Nick. Cheers. Uh, Dave Yates was was listening to Jeremy Ray talking to me there. Jeremy Ray, the founder of the Racing League, which. Um, gets a second series uh dave uh, but in a in a very different format yes it does i mean the first thing that i would like to say about the racing league nick is that in it's the way of the world these days and it's dictated by social media and in particular twitter that everything has to be either compulsory or it has to be banned that there is there isn't the we live in that binary world and and it seems barely possible to sit in between those two extremes but with the racing league in 2021 that's exactly what i did now the in terms of the prize money i know jamie osborne was a was a a vocal supporter of this and saying well you win a race in the racing league and the owner pays the training bills for significantly a significantly longer period of time than they would if you won a similar race outside the racing league. It, it's it's universally acknowledged that it was popular among owners, it was popular among trainers and jockeys, and also uh, that stable staff derived a benefit. Also, um, on the negative side, the the twelve teams were clearly ersatz uh, to a to a degree. We remember. There was that private eye piece that that Swish Cocktails, for example, um, didn't seem to exist as a company prior to uh, the Racing League. And I think that those of us who have been involved in racing for for as long as we have, we're suspicious um, that racing doesn't lend itself easily to being a team sport and therefore uh, that people running around with different coloured baseball hats... um, cheering for um, 
whether it be eToro or Thoroughbid or or Swiss cocktails, that that there was a phony element uh, to that. I think in that sense, the geographical uh, changes that we now not have twelve sponsored uh, brand teams, but we have seven regional ones that's a, a move in the right direction even as a proud son of bedford if i back a horse that is uh, representing uh, yorkshire in the competition i will still want that horse um, from yorkshire to win even if it means uh, beating a horse from london and the south so again I, i'm still skeptical about whether the team element works but th- th- an awful lot has gone into this we, we know also that When we read stuff again on Twitter, criticising the Racing League, it's from old hands. It's from people who have been in the industry and in this sport for decades. Well, you know what, guys? The Racing League, it's not for people like you. The the same thing happens when um, with, with ITV, the terrestrial broadcaster. There'll be lots of... It's normally the same old names who come onto Twitter uh, to bitch about the coverage and say that it's spoon feeding or we don't want we don't want fashion or we don't want this we want to see the horses. Well, again, ITV ITV's coverage it's being aimed at a, a broader audience than just those who have been who are already the the horse racing anoraks and to put it more kindly the racing conoscenti. So. Um, I think we have to give we we have to um, we have to cut a, a bit of slack uh, to the racing league in that sense. I think that there are obviously going to be uh, there'll be some raised eyebrows at Sky Sports Racing about the fact that ITV4 will be getting uh, the coverage of of the seven Thursday evenings. They threw an awful lot of their weight behind that, and the second series as you put it, will not be exclusively uh, screened on Sky Sports Racing now. So I'd be quite interested, uh, I'd be very interested uh, to see what the reaction of Sky Sports Racing is. Um, Also, of course, the the Skybet Sunday series, that was something uh, that was on um, ITV4 last year. It'll it'll be interesting to see how those, the, the, the change in relationships um, or the or the change the, the changes that have been made uh, to the racing league, how that plays out in 2022. I, I, I thought that um, what Jeremy Ray said about data was very interesting. I know that that's something that for many years um, our friend and colleague James Willoughby has talked about. That that in other sports where the uh, the people who are who are watching love consuming more data, whether it's uh, sports like football or cricket or American football, that, that their, their appetite for data uh, has increased over the last few years, that, that in horse racing, that's not something that has been embraced. And so I think that's a definite positive. I, I wish the Racing League well. You know, anything that uh, seeks to bring more uh, people into the sports has to be applauded. Uh, as a as a as, as an ideology, um, I'm not sure about the team element still. But as I say, it's probably not aimed at me, and I'll be very interested to see how it goes in 2022. And I wish it well. Right, Dave. We've talked long and hard around various issues. I, I want to be really snappy on a few horses that did actually run over the last few days. Where shall I start? Right, Album Photo winning his fourth 
um, Savile's chase at Tremor. Uh, impressed or not? Not massively. Uh, I, I was quite surprised that he was cut to eight to one in a place. He was six to one on to beat his three stable mates. He did so, what was it, by four, four and a half lengths, four and a quarter lengths maybe. Um, I think, well, only one horse has ever reclaimed the Cheltenham Gold Cup. That was Corto Star. He was nine when he did so. Album Photo is now 10. I'll be surprised and I'll be a little bit disappointed, I suspect, on uh, March the 18th if there aren't younger and stronger horses uh, to beat Album Photo in the Gold Cup. Tommy's Oscar, Paul Keeley from the Racing Post, suggested he might be the best two-mile hurdler uh, in Britain at the moment, which isn't saying much, I grant you, but uh, he might well have a point. And this could be a a left-field pick for the champion hurdle, judged on his victory at Musselburgh the other day. It may very well be that Tommy's Oscar is the highest-rated two-mile hurdler in Britain when uh, the ratings come out. He won that uh, race... On Saturday at Musselburgh, the, the, the Hogmanay handicap hurdle from a mark of 150, he's certainly going to be looking at the late 150s or 160, I think, as a result of that. Um, Ian Hamilton, his uh, owner and assistant to his wife, Anne, who holds the licence, said, well, we're probably looking at a, at a £10 rise for that. Not so sleepy. I looked yesterday. I, I haven't seen the, the, the figure that... Uh, will be published post-Christmas, but he was on 160. Uh, And so, yeah, Tommy's Oscar will be certainly up there, if not the highest rated hurdler in Britain. I think he can be backed at 50s or even 66s for the champion hurdle. There are quite a few things that would have to happen in order for him to win that. He'd have to be entered for it first. Uh, Speaking to Ian Hamilton yesterday, he said that I'm not sure that Cheltenham is his uh, track. I think that he, he's a horse who might be better on a flat track. But, you know, the, the, the champion hurdle was a possibility. He said that, that they've got to make the entry before Tommy's Oscar runs in the, the champion hurdle trial at Haydock at the end of this month. So, unfortunately, they've, they've got to sort of show their hand before uh, the horse has gone on trial for the race. But it's certainly interesting. Ian Hamilton asked me um, if I'd be interested in driving the box uh, from uh, the northeast to the Cheltenham Festival. He's obviously never seen me drive. <laughs> and although Willie Mullins continued his dominance of the Christmas period with more success yesterday at Nace with Blue Lord in particular, looking very impressive in the novice chase, the grade one, the Lawlers of Nace novice hurdle, went to Gordon Elliott, who's also had a good festive period. Ginto, very expensive horse, gave Nolan Valerie Moran and their Bective stud a first grade one victory, which is very significant as they are now emerging as one of um, Europe's leading jumps ownerships. Yes, indeed. And, and they are, if, if uh, Michael O'Leary, the Ryanair boss, goes through with his uh, promise to, to withdraw from jump racing, they'll be very much the principal owners at Gordon Elliott's. Remember back in February of last year, in the wake of um, the, the, the dead horse photo scandal, if I can put it in that red top way, uh, that... Gordon Elliott lost the Cheveley Park stud as owners. Now, the Bective stud, Noel and Valerie Moran, they, they withdrew their sponsorship uh, from the stable, but they kept the horses there. And as you say, this is their first victory at the top level. So it's, it's, it's a significant one. It's significant for them in that they are now very big players 
in national hunt racing. And also there is that element of, I suppose, payback from Gordon Elliott that, you know, whilst the yard sponsorship went, the horses didn't. And uh, this will be, I'm sure, what he hopes will be the first of many grade one successes in their colours. One of the great heroes of the game has run his last race, it was announced today, the retirement of Vieux Lyon Rouge. I've lost count of how many Grand Nationals this horse has run in. I've lost count of how many miles he's run around entry, how many of those entry fences he's jumped and how many races he's won. Professor Caroline Tisdall hasn't because she has owned this horse throughout his career in Great Britain. And he retires at hale and hearty, Caroline. Um, what a horse he's been for you. What a horse. Horse of a lifetime, I would say, Nick, for me anyway. Um, I always wanted a runner in the Grand National, and he has done it for me five times. And uh, he, he actually jumped 253 entry fences, and that puts it, that gives him the record, um, which is fantastic. He won two Beatrice Chases, came second in another, and was always found. Extraordinary horse, French. We bought him at Arcana for... Um, 35 grand and he earned well nearly 400,000 for us but that was almost immaterial uh, compared to what he gave me which is the entry dream and he did everything but win it you know he was often placed and um, we always said that he would tell us when he'd had enough and then at Haydock at the weekend he, he did um, he said mum um that was a bit of a heavy weight, and let's do something else. <laughs> Given what a wonderful temperament he appears to have and his his sound and bomb-proof nature, is he the sort of horse you think would easily be able to transfer his skills or, or be able to be ridden or do something else? Does he need to do something else? Now, this is the interesting question. For the moment, we're keeping him in the yard at Pond House, in his stable uh, at livery and leading out the youngsters, being uncle. Um, and we'll, we'll consider offers for hunting or um, things like that. It won't, be, it won't be anything like eventing or point to points because he, um, you know, he's too much of a pet. <laughs> um, he's a very, very clever horse. I think he could probably do anything but he would always keep you on his toes because he knows exactly what's what and likes to have a little um, expedition on his own. He's a, he's a Houdini. <laughs> I mean, you've had lots of other talented horses. You've had lots more, much more expensive horses than him. Does all of that, does all that surround sound give you context as to exactly how unusual he is? Yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm under no illusions, Nick, after having had a lot of horses now, that he was quite unique. And to find one like that is is so rare. Uh, it's what we all want, really. I mean, he just ticked all the boxes. He, uh, he's handsome as they come, wonderful temperament, sound, and very expressive. And I think you know, it helps. He he absolutely adored his groom. He adores his groom, Julie Bellamy, who's looked after him since he was three. And he just deserves to you know, do what he wants, and he'll tell us, you know. Caroline, thanks so much for chatting to me. Uh, I wish him all the best in what I hope is 
as long and glorious a retirement as has his racing career been. Thank you, Nick. It will be. And he's in the right place. They've always looked after him beautifully. Well, thanks to all my guests today. David Yates is still with me. David, have you got a tip for this afternoon? Right. I'm going to the last race at Lingfield at 3.40. Number three, Mixed Spirit. Scored in a novice stakes over course and distance at the end of November. Didn't get the brakes in a handicap again over Lingfield's five furlongs a week before Christmas. I hope can make amends here. 3.40 race at Lingfield Park. Selection number three, Mixed Spirit. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.